Good morning. If we can find our seats, we'll get started this morning. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 17. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to continue on through Ephesians this morning. Starting in 17, if you would, read along with me. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also are also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you would pray with me this morning as we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for this passage, God, this passage that uh, deals with the unity of the church, Lord. I pray that we are encouraged this morning as we go uh, through these verses, Lord, what Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, God. That we hear your heart, Lord, that you want a church that is unified, a church that, that finds their identity in Christ more than anything else, Lord. A diverse church, diverse in age, ethnic groups, and, and genders, Lord. A group, though, that is diverse and unified in their love for you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you're with us this morning as we go over this passage. Help us to understand this deep theology. Be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. We've been in uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, the last few weeks, which is largely about unity. It's largely about unity. In particular, unity between two groups, redeemed Jews, Christian Jews, and redeemed Gentiles. And if you haven't catched on yet, that word Gentiles, if you're new to the church, Gentiles just is a word for anyone that wasn't a Jew, any other people group, any other ethnic group that wasn't a Jew. These two groups really made up the church in the first century. And there was a lot of hostility, as we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks, between these two groups. And Paul's really writing to address this hostility. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 17, he's specifically addressing Gentile Christians Christians that are not Jews. And if you're not a Jew this morning, you don't have a Jewish heritage, he's talking to us, Gentile Christians, and he tells these Gentile Christians within Ephesus, who were the majority of the church, three things. He tells them who they were, who the Gentiles were before Christ. That's a Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. He tells them what has changed. That's verses 13 through 16, and that was the sermon last week. And he tells them the effect of this change. That's verses 17 through 22, and that would be today's passage. But before we jump into this passage, I really think it helps to understand the context of the book of Ephesus or book of Ephesians as a whole. Paul is talking about unity, and he's going to use the temple as an analogy. An analogy for this unity. And I asked this question last week, and I, and I still think it's a, a question we should be asking. Why use a temple as an analogy? I said last week that the church of Ephesus, and we just mentioned right now, was mostly Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. 
Christians from Asia Minor probably have never seen the temple and didn't know a whole lot about the temple. These were not Jews. So why use the temple as an analogy? And, and as you read verses uh, 11 through 22, it's obvious Paul's talking about the temple, but it's not, it's kind of in a cryptic way. It's not, not in your face that it's obviously the temple. Well, remember, Ephesians is often called a prison epistle. It's a letter that was written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome. And why was Paul in prison? Well, we learn why Paul was in prison in Acts 21. Acts 21 verse 27 says this, and it's on the screen. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, and I think those Jews were were probably from Ephesus. It's my guess. These Jews from Asia, they recognized Paul. These Jews from Asia, seeing him, that's Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks, which is another way of saying Gentiles. He even brought Gentiles into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed being key. They falsely accused Paul of bringing a Gentile, a non-Jew, into the temple. An Ephesian. Crossing the dividing wall. A wall literally set up to keep the Gentiles out of the temple. Paul was arrested because the Jews falsely accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple past the dividing wall. And I'm sure the church of Ephesus knew all about it. They probably personally knew Trophimus, the Ephesian. And he might have even been there when this letter was, was read to the church of Ephesus. And look what the Jews said. Verse 28, it says this, Moreover, he, that's Paul, they're accusing Paul of this, he even brought Greeks, he even brought an Ephesian into the temple and defiled this holy place. Do you see the disdain, the hatred? For Gentiles, for an Ephesian, a Gentile, just his presence within the temple, just him stepping foot within the temple has defiled the whole place. I bring this up again. I mentioned this last week. I bring it up again because I think Paul felt the weight of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christians. And he's challenging the Gentile Christians to be unified with, with their Jewish brothers that are Christians. Even if they were offended by the Jews, I believe that's the context, and I believe that's why Paul is using the temple as an analogy. And I think that helps us understand this whole passage. That's the context. Now I want to look at the passage, Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I couldn't find a good outline. One of the first things I do when I, when I read and start studying Scripture is I look for an outline. That's usually where I get my points, three or four points. It's the outline that Paul is using. I'm trying to get into the, the passage and really, really get the argument that Paul is making. And that's why I have three points, four points. But I couldn't find a good outline for this passage. So instead of having an outline, I have 12 observations. 12 observations. And I know some of you are like, we're not getting out of here until... <laughs> I got first service out in time, so 
12 observations. We'll go through them quickly of Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. The first observation is this. The gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. The gospel is for everyone. It's for both Jew and Gentile. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He preached. Literally, that word preach in Greek means to announce good news. He announced the gospel. He announced the gospel to both Jew and Gentile, those who were far off, the Gentiles, and those who were near Israel, the Jews. Verse 17, he came and he preached to you who are far off and, to, and preached to those who are near. Both Jew and Gentile needed the gospel. And that's been Paul's point in the first two chapters. Chapters 1 and 2. Let me just remind you, Paul is a Jewish Christian. Right? Paul is a Jew. He's a Jewish Christian and he's writing to Gentile Christians. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 12. And I want you to pay very close attention to the personal pronouns Paul used. Ephesians 1 verse 12, he says this, So that we, that we there, many believe, many theologians believe the we is referring to Jews. Right, Paul, Jew, he's saying we, verse, verse 12, he says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, Jewish Christians in other words, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In the, in the Gospels and in Acts, Jews were the first to hear the Gospel. The first church after Pentecost was Jews that believed, that followed Christ. Look at verse 13 now. In him you, right, Paul's talking to the church, Gentile Christian, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. After the Jews were saved in Acts, the Gentiles were saved Acts 10 and 11. The gospel went to the ends of the nation and started going to the Gentiles. Now look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance, both Jew and Gentile. Right? Both Jew and Gentile that are saved will receive an inheritance. They both needed the gospel, in other words. Now look at Ephesians 2 verse 1, and we should have this almost memorized by now. Ephesians 2 verse 1 and you, remember Paul's talking to the church, he's talking to Gentiles, Gentile Christians, right? He's talking to us. He says, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at the works of sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. All of us. Paul includes himself, a Jew. We all are sinners. We all needed life. We all needed the gospel like the rest of mankind. Jews and Gentiles all equally dead before God acted. Now look back at Ephesians 2.17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Even the Jews needed to hear the gospel. My second observation, we now have access to God. We now have access to God. Look at verse 18. For through him, Jesus, that's that's who he's talking about. For through him, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, through faith in Jesus. Look at verse 18. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile both 
have access to God. Gentiles who once were far off now have access. Even in the Old Testament, God's people had access to God, but they had restricted access to God. Only once a year, only once a year could one man, the high priest, enter the Holy of Holies. The Jews had restricted access, but, but now, because of Christ's works, God is approachable. We now have access. Hebrews 4.16 says this, and the Hebrews is a book to Jews by a Jew, and a Jew writing to Jews, right? a Christian Jew writing to Christian Jews. He said this, Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace. You know how shocking that would have been to a Jew? Be able to confidently approach God. The God that was out at Mount Sinai. Ephesians 3.11 says this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You know, as Christians, I, th- I just think we take that for granted sometimes. And just that we can pray and God will listen to us. It reminds me of uh, Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know what that implies? And, and Romans 5, 5 makes it clear that that before we had faith, we, we didn't have peace with God. We were at enemy with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also attained access by faith into his, this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Through faith in Christ. We have access to God. Which leads me to my third observation. We are fellow citizens with the saints. We are fellow citizens with the saints. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember verse 12? Look at verse 12 real quick. It says this. Remember, in other words, don't forget, command. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now look at verse 19. So then, this is the effect. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. This is what Benjamin Merkel says, a theologian, he says this, the status of Gentiles who, who now believe in Jesus as the Messiah have, have been completely transformed. Those who were Christless, separated from Christ, homeless, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, friendless, strangers to the covenants of promise, hopeless, having no hope, and godless, without God, are now citizens and members of the household of God. Which leads me to my fourth observation. Not just citizens, but family members. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You know how amazing that verse is? I don't know what you think of when you think of God. But if you're a Christian this morning, if your first thought is not a loving father, you don't know who God is. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It's amazing. When you think about this, the Old Testament refers to God as Father only 14 times. The whole Old Testament, only 14 times. And it always is referred to, to, to the nation of Israel, never individual. No individual dared to call God their Father. Then Jesus comes, and that's all he called God. He calls God Father more than 60 times in the Gospels. No one spoke, no one dared to speak like this, but Jesus did. He even used the Aramaic term, Abba, which literally means daddy. It's the most intimate way you could call someone father. Abba, father. But here's what's more amazing. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We call God Father. Before you were saved, Ephesians 2, 2 said we were, we were sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 3 says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, from eternity past, chose to pull us out of our natural family, children of wrath, and adopt us into his. Then he predestined that it would happen. In other words, God made sure, made sure you would be adopted. Why? Why would God do this? Why would he be so good to us? The answer is just simply he loved you. Verse 4, in love, in love, out of his love, not because you're special, not because he looked down and said, you know what, he's a good guy, I need, to, I need to put him in my family. Not because you did anything to earn his favor. Purely out of his nature to love. In love, he adopted us. Which leads me to the fifth point, or fifth observation. Not just family members, not just adopted sons, not just family members, but the temple of God itself. Verse 19 the household of God. God's house or household, verse 19, members of the household of God can, can refer to a spiritual house, like a family. Or it can refer to the temple, which is often referred to as the house of God. Even Jesus said, this is my father's house. It should be a house of prayer. I believe Paul is using both metaphors here. He moves from a household metaphor, a family metaphor, to a metaphor about the temple. Look at verse 19. 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation, that's a building analogy, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, again, this is a building, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the New Testament, both individuals and the church are called the temple of God. I think most of us know individually we're called the temple of God. Most of us have been told that, right? 1 Corinthians six nineteen says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Most of us have heard that, that the body, your body, is a temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives within you if you're a Christian this morning. And if you're a Christian, that's true. You're not your own. You're not your own. You are a temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives within you. But I think most Christians fail to understand that the church itself, the the corporate body, is the temple of God. And I'm not talking about this building. The people. We together are the temple of God, corporately. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, plural, we, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The church is a temple of God. Look what it says in verse 19 again. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the spiritual temple of God. Listen, the church is important. You've heard me say this from the pulpit. There's, there's two things I learned in seminary. I learned a lot in seminary. There's two things that kind of surprised me. And it wasn't because the seminary was pushing these two things. It was because we were reading Scripture and studying Scripture. Two things jumped out at me that just everywhere in Scripture. You've heard me say the first thing, that's just missions, the importance of reaching the nations, crossing cultural boundaries with the gospel to people groups that don't have anyone sharing the gospel. It's everywhere in Scripture. The second one is the importance of the church. The importance of the church. We live in such an individualistic society. I mean, just think about it. It's an amazing, it's amazing to me that, that in the Old Testament, when you're saved, you're saved into a community, Israel. In the New Testament, when you're saved, you're saved into a community, the church. The church is so important. It's so important. We collectively the body of Christ, one body, right? one household. We're in one household. We have one spirit. We're one temple. Leads me to my sixth observation. God is the one building this temple. God is the one building this temple. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. The Greek word there, built, is a passive participle. It's passive 
Look at verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. The Greek word being built together is one word for that, that phrase there. Being built together is a, it's in the passive voice. Both of these, these words are passive. The temple is passively being built, in other words. It's passively being built by God who is actively building the temple. And this is clear in the first two chapters of Ephesians. Chapters 1 and 2, it's just clear that God is the one acting. Again, we should have this memorized, but Ephesians 1, 3 says this. Just listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God is acting. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. Right Again, we should have this memorized. And you, right? That's us. And you, that's our part. That's what we did. We did act. And you were dead. And you were dead, right? You and me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that's now the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of us, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, verse 4, but God. He's building the temple. He's building the church. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He is acting. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is building his church. God is building his temple. Brick by brick. Which leads us to our seventh observation. This temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets. Right? They are foundational to this spiritual temple. The apostles is referring to someone chosen, commissioned, and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ as includes the twelve and Paul himself. New Testament prophets, and that's what this is talking about. New Testament prophets refers to one who is endowed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy for the purpose of edification, comfort, encouragement, as well as for the purpose of understanding and communicating the mysteries of God's revelation to the church. These are two unique offices that are foundational to the church. Because the apostle and New Testament prophet spoke authoritatively from God. In other words, their words held the same authority as God's words. Just think about that for a second. Their words held the same authority as God's words. Let me just ask you this. If an angel appeared in in your room in the middle of the night, 
if Jesus appeared in your room in the middle of the night, in all his glory, knocked you on your face, and he said, tomorrow I want you to go save Martin and buy some apples. Would you listen to him? Then why don't we listen to this? This holds the same exact authority. Listen, this is not beating up on anyone's Bibles. I, I love all Bibles equally somewhat. <laughs> Some translations, and I'm like, eh. I think you should use a number of translations because they're all Greek and Hebrew is original. And so they're translations. They're not perfect. Um, but, but some of your Bibles have red letters. I don't know if mine does. Oh, it does. So there you go. So I'm not against red letters. I'm not against red letters. Red letters are the words Jesus spoke. But listen, if you have a red letter Bible, you need to understand they hold no more authority than the black letters. They're both equally authoritative. They're both God's word. Now, I want you to think about that and then think of the office of those that spoke God's word. Think of the weight of that responsibility. The apostle and New Testament prophets spoke authoritatively for God. Thus says the Lord, equal to Scripture. Their words held the same authority as God's word. They spoke authoritatively. Now I want you to think about this. After Jesus died, right, Jesus' death, resurrection, and then ascension, he went went to heaven and, and was at the right hand of the Father. At that point, there was no New Testament scriptures. Think about that. There was no New Testament. It hasn't been written yet, the New Testament. That means during Pentecost, when the church was birthed at Pentecost, and years after in Acts, when the church was getting started and it was trying to figure out how to, how to live under a new covenant, different than the old covenant, they had no New Testament scripture to guide them. Which leads to the question, how did God lead his church in the first century? Well, he sent apostles, the twelve and Paul, to speak for God. And he also raised up New Testament prophets within the church to speak and teach authoritatively for God. Men inspired by God. Again, this was before the New Testament canon was completed. Before all the books of the New Testament were written. But here's what I think is interesting. Look at the analogy in Ephesians 2, 11 through 20, 22. This temple that is being talked about is a growing temple, right? And we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I want you to see it. Look at verse 21 in whom the whole structure, this temple, is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you you also are being built into a, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That being built together, again, that's one word, one word in Greek. It's in the present tense, which has a continual aspect to it. That's why it's translated being built together. It's continual. This, this temple is being built right now. But the foundation is laid. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I believe the unique function of apostle and New Testament prophets are foundational to this temple. Meaning complete. The foundation has been laid, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Actually, I just want you to see this because turn to Revelations 22.18 because I think this is a threat to the church. Again, one of my jobs is to protect from false teachings and false beliefs to, to get into the church, and I think this is a threat in our day and age. Revelations 22.18. These, and I just want you to just hold this, hold the weight to this. These are the last words, the very last words by the last living apostle. The last words of the last living apostle. The last thing ever written in the, in the New Testament. And this is what it says. Revelations 22.18. I warn everyone who hears these words of, of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, of the book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these sayings say, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with all. Amen. There's a completeness to that. There's a completeness to these last few verses. There's a completeness to Revelation as a whole. In the Old Testament, there is an expectation of new revelation. I want you to grasp that. In the Old Testament, when it closed, there is an expectation of a new covenant that was coming, a new prophets that would, that would speak, a new revelation that would come. That's why everyone was so excited when John the Baptist came on the scene. A prophet... Speaking authoritatively. But in the New Testament, it closes with no expectation of new revelation. Therefore, I don't think we should expect any more authoritative revelation from God. Because the New Testament, the canon is closed. The scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, have been foundational to the church for 2,000 years now. Foundational church for 2,000 years now. And I just want to read verse 18 again because I want you to hear the seriousness of this warning. Remind you again, this is the last thing ever written by an apostle. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy in this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life, and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The apostles and prophets are foundational, and the foundation has been laid. And we have it. Scripture. God's word. So I know there's a lot of people that claim to be apostles out there and claim to be prophets. And I just want to be very careful of that. Not everyone that claims to be a prophet says they speak authoritatively. And my thing is, and why listen to him? We have the authoritative word right here. But if anyone says they speak authoritatively, that's scary. That's scary. My eighth observation. The apostles and and the prophets are, are the foundation, but Jesus is the cornerstone. The eighth observation is this. Jesus is the cornerstone. Look back at Ephesians 2, verse 20. It says, Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In the ancient Near East Israel, the cornerstone by far was the most important stone of the foundation. It it was, in a sense, foundational to the foundation. It was the most important stone in the whole building. It was the first stone laid. Right? It held the weight of the whole entire building. It it, it held the, the walls firmly together. It determined how straight the building would be, and therefore it determined if the building would stand or fall. It had to be perfect. In fact, Isaiah calls it the testing zone. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation, as I am a stone, a testing stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. One pastor said it this way, Christ is the, the anchor of the foundation that is built by the apostles and prophets through their oral and written proclamation of the gospel, the new temple is built on Christ, the vital cornerstone. Which leads me to my ninth observation. Those who are united with Christ are the stones. Right? They're the bricks of the building. Verse 21, look what it says. In whom, in, whom we, or in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Why don't you think about that? Right? Just think of the context of this is being written to the church at Ephesus. Gentiles once separated from God. By a dividing wall of hostility, a dividing wall in the temple that kept Gentiles out far away from God. Far from the presence of God. And death was threatened if they passed that wall. Any Gentile that crossed that dividing wall. Paul is now saying, hey Gentiles, you are the temple. You are the temple. The building stones God is using for this spiritual temple. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. One body, one household, one temple. Being built together into a dwelling place for God. And it only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. In whom? In whom? That's pointing back to Jesus, the cornerstone. In whom? The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, again, that's Jesus. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, being built together into a temple of God, near to God. And that only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. Not works, not being good, not being holy. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was raised on the third day, and he's offering a free gift of salvation to anyone who believes in him. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Just a side note, if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't know Jesus this morning, put your faith in him. Trust in him. Trust in him. Put your faith in him this morning. Trust in him. Turn from your sins and turn to him. It's the only way to God. It's the only way to a relationship with him. Which leads to the tenth observation. The temple is still growing. The temple is still growing. Look at verse 21. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together. 
What type of growth is Paul talking about? Well, verse 21, the whole structure being joined together grows. There's really two types of growth, I think. The first one is, is numeric growth, which I think is obvious, right? Gentiles from around the world are being added to the structure, the universal church. Stones added to the temple. But secondly, I really think he's talking about spiritual growth, too. Look at verse 21. Grows into a holy temple. Grows into a holy temple. The temple or the church is growing into holiness. Actually, turn to Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5.25. Should be familiar to us, this, this verse, husbands. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a hard calling. And gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he, that's Jesus, might sanctify her. That's the church. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The church. The church has a lot of blemishes right now. <laughs> Our church, the universal church, we have a lot of blemishes, but one day the church will be holy and without blemish. Man, I look forward to that day. God is growing his temple. He's growing the church into a holy temple, into a holy church. And look how he's doing it. Verse 26 that we might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's why we take the word so seriously here. The word is what the Spirit uses within us, is what the Spirit uses to grow us, his word, to grow us into holiness. Which leads me to my 11th observation. The distinct feature of the temple is that God dwells in it. It's the dwelling place of God. This is true in the Old Testament, right? With the tabernacle and the temple, it's the dwelling place of God. God lived with his people. He lived with his people. Leviticus 26.9 says this, I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you. You will... You sh- er, you will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. In other words, I'm going to bless you. I'm in covenant relationship with you. I'm going to bless you. Verse 11, I will put my dwelling place among you. It's a temple. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. In the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people in Jerusalem, in the temple, and especially in the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the temple. That's where God's presence was represented. But there's a problem. There was a massive veil or curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the people. A 60-foot tall veil, and some uh, historians say it was four inches thick, this curtain. A massive curtain that separated God from his people. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Jesus' death gave us access to God. Hebrews 10.19, again, Hebrews, a Jew writing to Jews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, okay, the holy place right there is talking about the holy of holies. You hear what he just said? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies, that's crazy. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, I think that's the new covenant, that that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We have access to God's presence through the death of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, through his flesh. Listen, in the Old Testament, God dwelled in a physical temple in Jerusalem, separated from his people, separated even from his own people by a curtain. But in the New Testament, look at verse 22. In him, you, that's, that's Gentile, that's the church, that's, that's the Jewish Christians. In, in, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, are now the dwelling place of God being built together in unity. The stones carefully, carefully, purposefully placed together to make a unified building, a body. Which gets us back to the main point of this whole passage. The unity of the church. The unity of the church. My twelfth observation is this. Gentiles are now one Gentile Christians are now one with Jewish Christians and are the temple of God. Gentile Christians are now one with Jewish Christians and are the temple of God. They're not just welcome into the temple. They are the temple. Remember, right? Paul's in prison. It's the context of, of this letter. Paul's in prison because he was falsely accused of bringing Trophimus, bringing an Ephesian, Trophimus the Ephesian, into the temple, into the dwelling place of God. The Jews said this Ephesian defiled the holy place, the the temple. This dirty, unclean Gentile defiled it. Just his presence, passing the dividing wall. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, that's Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, that's, that's a Gentiles, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Gentiles once not allowed in the temple, not allowed near God, far away from God, now are the temple. God dwells inside each one of us, but corporately, We are the temple of God. That's why unity is so important. We're one temple together. I know, uh, I know we covered a lot. And I have two minutes. (laughs) Just had to talk fast. There's a lot of theology, a lot of biblical theology, a lot of history. Listen, I want you to get the main point. 
We are called to be a unified body. I'm talking about us, Country Oaks. We are called to sacrificially love each other, to know each other, to get involved in each other's lives. We are called to be a unified body. We're called to be one temple together, and that oneness, that love, is called to be a witness to our community. I want to end with a quote. End with a quote from Benjamin Merkel as a theologian. He said this, According to Revelation, believers from every tribe and language and people and nation, every tribe and, and language and people and nation from every ethnic group in the world, right? Revelations 5.9 will worship around God's throne. God wants a diverse church. He wants a diverse church. He's making sure that there's someone from every ethnic group represented in heaven for eternity. He wants a diverse church that is unified in worship of him. But often, that's what he says, let me read it from the beginning. According to Revelations, believers from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, that's Revelations 5, 9, will worship around God's throne, but often the church on earth does not look like the church in heaven. We must work hard We must work hard not to to contradict the gospel inadvertently by refusing to worship, fellowship, and serve with people who look, speak, and act differently than we do. I mean, that could just be age groups. That's why we've we've purposely not separated our church in in age groups. I love looking out and seeing all different types of age groups. That's why we love kids in the worship center. Diversity, that's hard, right? The gospel unites all believers together into one family and one temple. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, Lord, I know as the Christmas season is coming, as we celebrate the birth of your Son, and I hope that's the focus in, in our hearts, Lord, that, that the God of the universe, the God that spoke everything into existence, the God that, that holds everything together by the power of his word, became human. And not just human, a baby born in a manger. And if that was bad enough, Lord, he died on the cross purposefully to save us, Lord. God, I pray that that truth, the gospel, who you are, Lord, I pray the truth of Christ, that we are Christians, Lord, followers of him, Lord. I pray that truth is our identity above everything else, and that identity unites us into one body that loves each other. And God, I pray it doesn't stop there. Lord, I pray that unity, that love for each other, Lord, is just so attractive to people outside of these four walls as I have been praying through 1 John even, Lord, and as we've been going through Ephesians, I continue to pray that, that we just so love each other that it's weird to people outside these walls. That they say, what do they have? How are they so unified? How do they love each other so much? What do they have that, that, that I don't? Pray that we're united on the truth, Lord, of what your Son has done for us, Lord. Again, there's no better time as we get to Christmas season. And Easter, as we celebrate these, these holidays, Lord, that point to what you have done for us, there's no better time to remember what unites us as a church, Lord. Help us to love each other sacrificially. Help us, Lord, if there are those that are in the outskirts of our church that, that just aren't involved, help them to, to dig in deeply, Lord, 
to build strong relationships, to love one each other, Lord, one another, to be with us, Lord. I pray that through your spirit, Lord, your son's name. Amen.